VI Shots Love You podcast, episode number 29. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of VI Shots. My name is Michael Ivaliotis, and this is the podcast devoted to the world of LabVIEW. With each episode, I bring you interviews, discussions, and share with you ideas for how you can take your LabVIEW development to the next level. Well, thank you all again for joining me on this episode of the VI Shots podcast. I'm your host, Michael Ivaliotis. Today, as always, I have a special guest interview. I have Thomas Bress, who's the author of the new book out on LabVIEW called Effective LabVIEW Programming. Uh, however, before we get into the interview, I'd like to talk about an important event that's happening early next year. It's the Certified LabVIEW Architects Summit. This year is very special to me since I've volunteered to be the co-chair of this event together with Nate Mooring, who is the chair. So you can trust me when I say that I have it on good authority that it will be held on March 3rd, 4th, and 5th of 2014 in Austin, Texas. So uh, save the date for that. Uh, this is a free event to attend. Uh, there's no tickets required. Of course, uh, travel expenses are required, hotel and travel. Now, I'm a strong believer in getting out of the office uh, or if you work at home uh, or a cubicle or whatever the workspace you call uh, uh, your working place and going out and meeting people. That's, that's very important as far as uh, professional development. There are two events that I always try to get to um, in the world of LabVIEW. The number one event, of course, is NI Week. I try to attend that every year. Uh, the second event that I always attend is the CLA Summit. The CLA Summit was uh, going on for a while before I started attending, but after I attended for the first time, I decided to add it to my yearly calendar. Um, I consider it that, that good. Also, uh, if you go on the VI Shots website, and uh, you'll see that I also have a video that I took of uh, this past CLA Summit of some of the R&D, the original R&D folks uh, for LabVIEW. And it's a pretty interesting uh, video if you want to watch that. And those are the kind of things that go on at the CLA Summit. Um, of course, you get to interface with um, other colleagues and people in the, um, in the LabVIEW world. Of course, there's only one catch to attending. You must be a certified LabVIEW architect. So if you have your CLAD or CLD and have not yet made it the leap to the CLA level, then you have five months to do so. Uh, if you have no idea what I'm talking about in regards to certifications, just go to vishots.com slash certified to get more information about how to become a certified uh, in, in LabVIEW and what that means. And to get more details as they become available about the CLA Summit in Austin, you can go to vishots.com slash CLA Summit. Now, uh, let's get into our interview. Uh, Thomas, thanks for coming on to the show. No, thank you for having me. And uh, speaking of uh, people becoming certified, I know there's a lot of information in a book that, uh, that just came out that was written by you on uh, how to get your CLD, actually. Yeah, that's right. That was actually kind of the inspiration for the book. Back when I had my certified LabVIEW associate developer and I was going through a, a period where I was preparing for the CLD exam. I was looking around for any kind of books or material that I could find, and there really wasn't much out there. And so this book, Effective LabVIEW Programming, is basically the, you know, the book that I wished had been there for me when I was preparing for the CLD exam. So that's kind of the animating principle behind it, and I think that you know, anyone who is preparing for the CLD exam will find this book helpful. Yeah, I mean, uh, 
that's uh, very true. I mean, there aren't very, very many books out there. Um, and the books that are out there, uh, they talk a lot about the mechanics of LabVIEW, right? Like how to actually go through the menus, how to find things in the palettes. Your book is slightly different. Right. I, I decided to take a different approach there. there. There are a lot of beginning LabVIEW books that kind of teach you about how to wire things together. But that's really only half the story I found with LabVIEW. That's actually the easier half. I mean, LabVIEW is a graphical programming language, and so there's a little bit of a learning curve there trying to figure out how to wire things together, where they are on the palettes. But that, you know, that learning curve is pretty easy, I think, to navigate. Once you actually have LabVIEW open and in front of you, you can figure it out. The hardest part for me was the whole data flow thinking. When I was starting out using LabVIEW, you know, I had experience programming in text-based languages. I'm looking at LabVIEW thinking, how am I supposed to do anything when I can't name a variable? You know, when I, when I don't, I have these wires and I, I have things kind of anonymously floating around. How do I save data from one loop iteration to the next? You know, what's a good way to do error handling? So most of the books that I saw didn't really address any of those topics at all. And so I think that's the biggest stumbling block to people that are trying to you know, take their LabVIEW skills to the next level, like you say in the intro to the show, is trying to get an idea of how to use that data flow thinking effectively. And that's what this book is, is based on. And uh, what's funny is, uh, you, you know, when we, well, I, I first met you at an iWeek, and uh, there's another reason why you should go to, <laughs> to meet people is uh, <laughs> meet pe and talk about these things. Uh, we met at an iWeek at the Lava Barbecue in specific. And um, you, you actually mentioned a little bit about the story as to how the book came about, and you actually weren't intending on actually writing a book, were you? No, I, it, it's kind of funny where I was working at the University of Michigan, and I was working as a, a lab manager while I was also simultaneously kind of creeping along on my PhD on my own time. I had a full-time job as an engineer supporting the lab classes, and the first assignment that was given to me was to go out and you know, learn LabVIEW. Go learn LabVIEW and then write data acquisition programs for all of the labs that are done in the mechanical engineering department. And so, um, luckily, National Instruments sends out people to, you know, to the universities to support people like me who are trying to put LabVIEW and National Instruments hardware in front of students. And so, the um, NI rep was named Andy Watchhorn at the time. And he and I had developed a, a good working relationship. I always enjoyed seeing him because he wasn't a sales engineer. His his job was to help me out and just do whatever he could to, you know, to put National Instruments products out in front of the students. And so he was always always trying to help me, always trying to give me stuff. And I had been kicking around an idea for a book in my head. I was thinking that you know, an effective way maybe to to teach someone how to do LabVIEW programming rather than the kind of standard book approach would be to focus something on a project and to show that you know, here's how you do a state machine and here's an actual state machine if you want to add an event structure we'll talk about event structures and then here's upgrading our state machine by adding event structure then we can upgrade it again with a queue and so forth and so on and so i had worked out just a a couple of ideas in labview and i had chosen one of the certified labview developer exams as kind of a test bed for this idea anyone who's been looking at these exams, they might recall there's one that's based on a car wash where you can choose either an economy car wash or a deluxe car wash. And so I was basically, you know, putting together different versions of the car wash using different types of ideas. And when Andy Watchhorn came in to see me, I showed him what I was thinking about and just sketched out the idea of how the book might go. And then he pulls out his cell phone and he gives a call to 
Tom Robbins, who's the publisher at National Technology and Science Press, NTS Press, which is uh, like a subsidiary of National Instruments, and they, they kind of are the National Instruments publishing arm. And within a day, I had a, a publishing contract for this book, and I was still working on my PhD, and I still had a full-time job, and starting on a, a book project was like the last thing I needed to do at the time. <laughs> yeah. But he gave me that boot in the pants that got the project moving, and so and now it's done. Yeah, well, well, I'm glad he did because uh, there's, uh, I like the uh, the flow of the book, and I like how you jump into talking right away about important topics uh, in the LabVIEW development environment, uh, which, frankly, uh, if you aren't, you know, trained on, if, like, if you don't take, uh, you know, the LabVIEW training courses, or if you're not uh, interfacing with other people in the LabVIEW community, you, it takes years to build up this this knowledge and this experience uh, on your own. Um, sp- specifically, things like um, you know the the queued state machine and uh, you know proper usage of that queued state machine. Because throughout the book, you have littered you know tips and tricks and um, notes about you know style and also you know what to watch out for and gotchas and things like that. Which those kind of things uh, only you only learn from experience, and you've kind of put all that into the book, which I like. Yeah, the um, I was actually lucky by having this this particular job since I was working for a university, and uh, my main responsibility was to take care of the lab classes. I had a lot of freedom over what what my actual job duties were going to be. So when I was preparing for the CLD exam, I you know, I literally had an entire summer where I just went every day into the lab and I had all of my old spaghetti code versions of things that kind of worked for the labs, and I I said I, I was going to turn all of these things into state machines, and so. Every day, I would just go into an empty lab with all of the hardware and the software, and I had the luxury of spending like the entire day, every day, working on trying to improve the codes that I had already written. And so that that was a a great way to learn the lessons the hard way, because I was trying to look at just you know scattered examples of what a state machine looks like and trying to re- kind of reverse engineer them into into my code. And so that was one of the goals of the book was to kind of distill all of these. Uh, tips and tricks and the the lessons I learned the hard way for people that don't have the luxury of taking three months at a time and working on LabVIEW every day. Mm-hmm. So let's t- talk a little bit about how the how the book is laid out and um, you know the the different sections. Uh, so what what is kind of the the progression through the chapters here? Sure. the The way that I decided to organize the book, I'll call it like a learn by showing and uh, teach by showing, learn by doing type of approach. And I came up with a kind of a repeating pattern that I would use throughout the book where I tried to take a chapter where I introduce a topic, like introduce a classic state machine or introduce event structures or cues or different versions, uh, different aspects of object-oriented programming. And I take a chapter to just talk about it in general and show in like small programs and code snippets how you would, how would use that concept, how you might implement it into a small code. And then I would follow that with a chapter where I take this car wash exam and show a full-blown implementation of a certified LabVIEW developer exam solution that uses that particular topic. And then I usually follow that with a problem set chapter where I've come up with a bunch of different exercises that are also related to that topic. So one of the, the key features of the book, I think, is that instead of just talking about different topics, you get to see what it looks like in a full-blown program. And all of the programs that are in the book are downloadable from the website. So if you're interested in running them yourself or tinkering with them or changing them or 
introducing your own ideas to see how well they work. You know, you can, you're free to do that without having to reconstruct all of the code from scratch. The other interesting thing, I think, is that my publisher is the one that had suggested that I come up with exercises because he was hoping that it would you know, broaden the appeal of the book. And that took me about a, a year or so of extra time to come up with all of the exercises. But I ended up hitting on the idea that what I would do is that I would take all of the other certified LabVIEW developer exams that NI has published all the past exams, and I use those as the basis of the exercises in the book. So that if you are in a position where you're interested in the certified LabVIEW developer exam, you'll see multiple solutions of this one car wash example throughout the book. And if you want to work on all of the exercises in the book, you can eventually get multiple versions of all of the previously published exercises that you can work on yourself or see all of the solutions in the book. Another decision that I had made because um, I've used textbooks as self-study guides before and it's, it's frustrating when you see like the perfect exercise for what you're trying to do on your job, say, but the answer to that isn't in the book. So in the book at the end, I included full solutions for every exercise in the book. There's 11 different problem sets in the book. So almost like a quarter of the book at the end is exercise solutions with all figures showing all of the code. And all of the exercise solutions are also available for download on the website. You and know, then also, oh, sorry, yeah, well, I started to interject. One thing I, I like, and because uh, people are thinking, well, you know, diagram code on, on a book, how does that look? Well, I, I, I'm happy to say that it's in full color <laughs> and uh, you can actually read all the diagrams and all the text in the diagram. So I just wanted to mention that because that's, that's very important to, to, to us as LabVIEW uh, coders. Yeah, I really have to uh, express my thanks and appreciation to my publisher on that one. That was his idea to try to put the, the book in full color. And, you know, it makes the, it's a hard decision from a publisher standpoint because that makes the book more expensive and trying to gauge the, like, the size of the LabVIEW audience. But he was able to, uh, you know, convince everyone to go along with that aspect. And so I think, as far as I know, this is the, the first LabVIEW book that's ever been published in full color. And when you've got a, la a language like LabVIEW, it just makes a world of difference to see the code exactly as it looks on your screen rather than in grayscale or black and white. Mm -hmm. And then I also have one chapter at the beginning, which is kind of a LabVIEW basics chapter. Um, this again was the idea of my publisher. He wanted to make sure that the, the book was accessible to people that were even almost absolute beginners. And that was another hard chapter to write because there are a lot of LabVIEW books out there where the entire book is basically LabVIEW basics and teaching you the basics of programming in LabVIEW and how to wire things up. And so I, I, obviously I couldn't write an entire book's worth of introduction. So that was another decision that I made was uh, the way to make this book reasonable in length, but yet accessible to people that are even just beginning their journey in LabVIEW programming, is that I decided to focus on just really the core kind of structural functionality of LabVIEW. But this is not a book about data acquisition, Fourier transforms, or advanced mathematics, or you know, bit manipulation or anything like that, even though LabVIEW can do all of that, I, I don't address those in the book. So in, in my LabVIEW basics chapter, I'm focusing mainly on things like loops and clusters and arrays and shift registers and you know, basic, basic things that you'll find in any good LabVIEW program. And so even just focusing on the basics, that, lab, that particular chapter turns out to be fairly long, but I was able to carry that idea throughout the whole book. I'm kind of proud of the fact that if you were to count up the the number of LabVIEW functions that I introduce in the book and take it as a percentage of all the LabVIEW functions that are available in LabVIEW, the, that number would be really small. So I'm, I'm not trying to 
to be a book that gives you everything about everything. I'm trying to give you ideas on how to write you know, a good effective LabVIEW program that's in good style, that uses uh, design patterns that are recognized, that uses data flow effectively. So the surprising thing to me was that to do that, I just had to function on a very small set of LabVIEW functions to do that. Right. Um, well, I, I agree with you on that. Uh, definitely, there's a lot of people that, I mean, I, as uh, with all the years of diving into other people's code, um, I, I see, I've seen it all <laughs> as far as the different, <laughs> the different style. And all it takes is just reading, you know, one or two chapters of this book. And it's an eye opener for someone who uh, doesn't know how to write effective LabVIEW programs to say, oh, maybe I should be using a state machine. That's kind of cool. Um, instead of this, you know, super long spaghetti code that fits all on one VI right. and you have to sort of scroll around the screen. Um, and that is, that is very important and, to, and, and you know, as, as your program grows and uh, gets more functionality, it's, it becomes easier to read and easier, easier to augment if you're using proper style from the beginning. Um, and style is very uh, important in the book. I, I notice, uh, for example, there's one section that uh, lists a bunch of style guidelines that are that you use in the book. Mm -hmm. uh, and my favorite is, every program should occupy one screen if possible with no scrolling. <laughs> yeah, that's a hard one to meet sometimes. But but I've worked with students that were just learning LabVIEW, and I've also, like you, have reviewed other people's code who are you know, working programmers or working engineers who are doing some programming on the side. And And the interesting thing there is that when you show someone how they can do that, that's that's one of the things that most people just go, wow, I didn't know you could do that. Or it so totally changes their way of programming with just that one piece of advice. If you show them how they can stay on one screen and maybe just scroll in one direction rather than be all over the map and not be able to see what their code is doing. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you, when you get into like the state machine approach, if you can size your state machine to the, to the you know, a, a decent sized screen uh, computer monitor, then and just force yourself to say, you know, I'm not going to resize this state machine. I'm not going to make it bigger. It's going to be this size. And it kind of enforces you to think about the design even more and how you can make it more modular so your code fits in there. It's like, oh, I guess I'm going to have to create a sub-VI. <laughs> uh, that's that's a neat concept. <laughs> yeah, and you know, the way I, f I've, I think of that too is like, when I talk about this, I'm not kind of like just saying I'm holier than thou because I've been there. When I, when I did my first LabVIEW coding on my own, kind of teaching myself, I was using sequence structures everywhere and local variables because I was still stuck on the idea of, of having named variables that I could drop anywhere. My programs are all over the place. And when I learned how to put stuff on the one screen, do stuff with a state machine, everything just magically started getting better. And uh, one way I've described this, I, I gave a talk on this once at NI Week called Spaghetti Code to State Machines is that if you just go in with the mindset that you're going to learn how to do this, even if you don't understand right away, even if you're not bought into the idea that state machines are going to help you, but you just try to keep an open mind and you start following these style guidelines that all of these you know, years of LabVIEW programmers before you have worked out, what I found is that magical things seem to happen. Good things just happen without being planned and you kind of avoid bad mistakes that might have always plagued you in the past like you're saying, with being forced to be more modular. I mean, there's a lot of good that comes from that, from having lots of sub-VIs rather than just all of your code exposed on the on one block diagram. And if you start doing that, 
good things just start happening. It becomes easier to debug your code because you know your sub-VIs are good, so the problem had to be somewhere else. And so the way I look at it is that all of these style guidelines were, you know, they didn't drop from the sky. They came from 25 years of however many LabVIEW programmers beating their heads against different problems and coming up with good solutions that why not follow all of the advice of the community that's gone before you? You have to know when to break the rules, but in general, if you follow the rules, then then you'll be in better shape than if you didn't. Usually, usually rules are broken when you have to meet deadlines. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, if you know what the rule is and you decide to break it, then that's usually better than not knowing what the rule was in the first place. Yeah. Um, some, some of the other tips in here are also useful. Uh, keep wires as straight as possible, align functions, um, and... It's also very important to me, and I find that even seasoned LabVIEW developers don't do this, is uh, proper documentation. Um, documenting yep. your diagrams and your, you know, your, your structures and all these things. Um, and you mentioned in the book when you're taking the CLD exam, uh, style, like documentation is something that, uh, it's kind of like free points, right? Yeah, it's the easiest part. They give you three categories of points, and the documentation... You know, it doesn't matter if your code works or not, if it's functional or not. The documentation points are still given to you if, as long as you document. So if, for me, that was um, when I gave that talk about spaghetti code to state machines, that was one of the transformational habits that I picked up from just trying to prepare for the CLD exam was doing things, simple things. Like if you've got a case structure, try to put a comment in every case of the case structure. Or if you've got a loop, make sure that there's at least one comment somewhere in the loop that describes what that loop is going to do. If you have a sub-VI, put a comment on the block diagram that describes what that sub-VI is going to do. Use tip strips or descriptors on your controls. Uh, use the, the VI description for your sub-VI so that when someone's hovering over the icon, they know what's going on without having to open the program. So those are all very easy things to do during the, the Certified LabVIEW Developer exam, as long as you don't try to like save it for the end and try to cram it in all the end. Just as you're going, if you're documenting as you're going, then that's basically free points for the exam. Right. And the functionality is also can be plus or minus, but the, I think that for me, the CLD exam, the hardest thing is the style. And that's what this book is about too. Uh, people complain about the four-hour time limit for uh, the CLD exam, and it can be tight. But the, I, in my experience, the people that have the most difficulty with the time limit are the ones that haven't really internalized the style guidelines and using a state machine um, you know, often enough so that it's in muscle memory and you can set it up very quickly. So I think that's what the CLD exam is primarily testing for. Is like if you've got you know good style as a habit, and if you document as you go, then you, you really don't need too many more points on the functionality to get a passing grade. Yeah, I mean, if someone is in the middle of uh, you know preparing for the CLD or is thinking about it. Uh, definitely, I, I would highly recommend just just go buy this book. You'll you'll pass the CLD. There's no no question about it. I mean, this book basically walks you through all the things you need to, and and plus the examples you have in here are basically pulled right out of the CLD exams. This the sample yep. the sample exams. So um, you're basically if if I would highly recommend this book for anyone that's that's preparing for the CLD. Definitely. Um, now, one one interesting outcome of you publishing this book is the feedback from various schools that you've gotten, correct? Yes, it's been very exciting because um, I'm not a college professor. Uh, and when I wrote the book, I had the idea that it, the way that I was structuring it would be good for use in a class, but I really was structuring it as a self-study guide. 
that's why I put the all of the exam or all of the answers in the book and put in so many exercises so that someone who was kind of like me, a lone wolf, trying to learn LabVIEW on their own without anyone to, to give them any tips or tricks or review their code, they would at least have tons and tons of code and examples in this book that they could look at. And my publisher has been sending evaluation copies of the book to various universities that um, offer classes that use LabVIEW. And just last week, we got our, our first adoption of this book as a textbook. So right now, um, Schoolcraft College in Livonia, Michigan, is planning on using this book as their textbook in one of their LabVIEW classes. And so that's been very exciting, and I'm hoping that other uh, schools or universities will will follow suit and top the book. One issue, though, is that because I made this decision to put all of the answers in the back of the book, that makes it a little tough to use it as a textbook because you know, typically they would want the students to work it out on their own. So an idea that I'm kicking around right now um, in conjunction with my publisher is that we are putting together some ideas for a downloadable supplement to the book that would be you know, supplemental exercises at the same kind of level as the ones that are in the book, except that they wouldn't have the solutions so that instructors of the book would be able to get the solutions, the students would be able to download just the, the problems and that they would be able to integrate them into the classroom. So that's, that's the next step for this book is trying to sit down and come up with projects similar to a CLD exam that I could break up into smaller pieces the way that I did in the book here. Yeah, I'd like to uh, kind of, I, I did read your book um, and I, I, I made some notes along the way and there's some interesting points in here. Now, the, the book is targeted towards uh, beginner to intermediate level. I think yeah, it's correct. I think if you're an advanced, uh, you know, CLA level person, you might not find this book very useful. However, I've, I've spoken to a lot of CLAs that don't even use classes, LabVIEW classes. So, <laughs> you know, you never know. Um, there, there could be some useful information because you actually do talk about classes in here as well at, at the end, which is, which is very good and I think is the right thing to do. Um, but I actually learned something from this book too. Uh, I, I'm not a, a fan of feedback notes and I'm kind of the old school, you know, shift register kind of guy. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> um, and I've been struggling to, you know, use them and come up with kind of a mental picture of how they map to like the shift register. And, and, and I was always trying to do that, trying to map it back to the shift register. And, and, I, was, and I realized that that's kind of the wrong way of thinking because the feedback node icon itself kind of gives you hints about what it does. Right. Um, but I didn't realize that until I read this section in your book. And hopefully if someone else hears this, they can um, also get the understanding that I did. And I'll just read this. It says, the feedback node points in the direction of the data flow. Uh, the value that is fed into the back of the arrow is stored until the next time that the feedback node is evaluated. When the feedback node is evaluated, the stored value is fed from the node in the direction of the arrow on the feedback node. So that, that small section kind of, kind of gave me an aha moment. <laughs> it's like, okay, so that's what the arrow means. Um, so yeah, so that actually kind of made me kind of re-evaluate re the feedback node and with that kind of mental picture. And that really helped me understand that better. And actually, I'm, I'm using it even more now. So thank you for that. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah, that was interesting because, you know, a while back, the feedback node could only be used in a loop. And then NI made a big change where they allowed it to be a standalone element so that it didn't have to be attached to a loop. And so at that time, that was also a I was just in the same position where that I read that that change had been made, but I didn't think that it was useful. But then I had seen some other people that were using it in 
with action engines or functional global variables instead of having you know, a while loop with a true wired to the stop terminal so that would only run one iteration. And so that when I started seeing that and thinking about it, that, that kind of opened up new possibilities for how you could use that as well for me. Yeah, and uh, also another thing that um, I, I learned some new terminology, which I'm, I'm not sure where you got this from, but I'm just, I'm just curious if you had... If you can explain, uh, when you were uh, describing the state machine, like the classic state machine and then sort of the evolution, you gave certain names to different parts of it. Mm-hmm. Um, one was the data highway, and that's the uh, the common shift register that passes data between different states of the state machine. And then you have um, the lobby of the state machine, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is the part in, in front of, uh, of the case structure. And then you have the alley of the state machine, which is the part to the right or behind the, uh, or I guess to the front, if you want to think of the front as the right side. Um, so how did you come up with the, those terms? <laughs> <laughs> well, that yeah, that was, I guess it's turning out to be one of the more controversial, if you could say that something is controversial in the LabVIEW book. When we had some sample champ- chapters of the book available, I was getting some people saying, oh, what are you doing here making up terms? I found myself kind of in this position where I wanted to discuss just the basic structure of, of how you set up a state machine because again I think one of the big issues with LabVIEW is that if you're a text-based programmer and you're, you're given a new project you can think and get a picture in your head of what the final product is going to look like and roughly the size of the program so that you know you know where to start and when you're in the middle of the project you can kind of get a mental picture of of your progress and how far along you are and how much time you've got more to put in but then if you start programming in LabVIEW where it's you know such a different system as far as data flow and graphical programming, you often get that blank VI syndrome where you just don't know where to start. And even when you don't have a picture of where you're going or in the middle, you don't know how far you've got to go to your end. So that was a big problem for me. And that's what learning about state machines really does help because it it gives you a mental picture of what your final product is going to look like. And it gives you a way of gauging your progress as you go through. So I was trying to set up this state machine chapter where I could lay out some really basic tips about where you put your controls and indicators because you know where you put them whether they're inside of the loop or inside of the main case structure or upstream or downstream of the case structure they behave differently because they get evaluated at different times and i get i found myself kind of being stuck because there wasn't there weren't very many accepted terms for pieces of a state machine like data highway i had seen that before so i'm i'm pretty confident that that's that's a term that won't surprise most labview programmers but I was trying to think of how do I describe that area right upstream of the main case structure so that when your main loop iterates, things that are upstream of the case structure are going to get evaluated no matter what state you go to because that's where they are. And if you have indicators that are fed from the main case structure, they'll get evaluated each loop because that's where they are. So I came up with this idea of calling them the lobby and the alley. And I had other terms that I was playing with, but I figured that if if the state machine is like a building, then you come into the lobby. And so I, I thought that was a good name for that area. Also because <laughs> I had a smaller case structure in that upstream part that is a guard clause that checks for errors before you go to the next state, which is a very common practice. But there's there was no official name for that little case structure. So in text-based programming, it's called a guard clause. So I was calling it the the guard case structure or the guard clause. And I'm thinking, well, you know, the guard, he sits in the, in the lobby. <laughs> and so you're going into the lobby of the building and you see the guard and then you go into the, the office that you're, that you're trying to, to go to. That's like getting into the main case structure. 
And then when you leave the building, that common area behind the building, kind of the opposite of the lobby, is the alley. And so that's where I came up with those names. And so hopefully uh, I do point out in the book out of the list of names that I'm giving these pieces of the case structure, which ones I came up with and which ones I considered to be kind of common usage in the LabVIEW community so that someone who's reading the book will know which, which terms other people might be confused about if they use in, in conversation. But again, <laughs> the, the main thing is just that I wanted to, to really give some advice about placement. And if you can't talk about the places, there's no names for the different places that you can put your controls and indicators, then, then how are you going to, to give that advice? But were you working for Exponent when you were writing the book? No, I, currently I'm a consultant with uh, a company called Exponent, and it's a science and technology consulting firm. Okay. They, special, you know, they specialize so. in having PhDs and professional engineers and kind of the high end. But when I started this book, like in the story I was telling you with Andy Watchhorn visiting me at the University of Michigan, I was actually working full-time as a lab engineer at the University of Michigan, and I was working on trying to finish my PhD totally on my own time at the same school. So it was, okay. it was easy enough to, to do because I was in you know, the same school where my lab was. And then after I got my PhD, I was still in the middle of working on the book. And then I got the job offer with Exponent and then moved from Michigan to Maryland and just kept going. I took a, a bit of a break there on the book as I was moving my family from one state to another and starting a new job, but then picked it up again and continued through this year where it finally got published. So uh, while working, uh, well, currently working with Exponent, um, you did, uh, and that company does uh, failure analysis, and you sent me a cool video showing um, a metal frame of a car on fire. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that's, it's one of the interesting things about finishing the book is that um, while I'm at Exponent, I'm not like a full-time LabVIEW programmer. When I was at the University of Michigan, most of my time was working with the data acquisition systems and LabVIEW programming. So I was finishing up the book, but the, the number of hours per week that I was spending on LabVIEW-related stuff had gone down. But the projects that I did get to work on were pretty interesting. Um, my most recent LabVIEW-related project was a grant that was offered by the National Firefighters Protection Association, the NFPA. And they're concerned about the dangers that a firefighter would face when they're trying to extinguish an electric vehicle fire. Right? Instead of having gasoline, now you've got this this big high voltage battery that's on fire. And so what they wanted to do was that they wanted to set these batteries on fire in a vehicle simulator and allow firefighters to try their standard different techniques of putting out fires to see how effective it would be. But while they were doing that, the NFPA wanted someone out there taking all kinds of data to um, measure the temperatures and the heat fluxes, to measure the currents and voltages that are actually on the the nozzle that the firefighters are holding, or the, the currents and voltages that might be flowing through the vehicle when the battery is on fire. And the most interesting part of the project was that they wanted to see if we could also communicate with the battery while it was on fire. So I had purchased a CDAC chassis, and one of the modules was a CAN bus module, and we had a, a cable that we insulated and ran from the CDAC chassis to the battery. So that while the battery was on fire, at least for the, you know, the first part of the test before the internal circuitry started getting fried, I was communicating with the battery while it was burning and looking at its internal voltages, its internal temperatures, and I was also monitoring the, the temperatures of the thermocouples and the heat flux sensors and all of these current and voltage measurements. So that was a, a really nice project because I was able to, 
to buy all of these modules for the CDAC chassis and get everything all wired together. Uh, the difficulty was that the, the uh, CAN bus cable was only about 20 feet long. And so they had to set me up with the CDAC chassis within 20 feet of this blazing uh, vehicle <laughs> simulator with the 400 volt battery. And so they basically took a big blue tarp and they stuck it over me because the firefighters are there with the hose, so water spraying all over the place, and I had all of my electronic equipment. And uh, it was one of these uh, almost like flying on instruments. I couldn't see the fire. I could hear that something really big was going on pretty close to me, but I couldn't see because of the tarp. So all I had were my instruments to see like how bad or how hot things were getting. So <laughs> I was kind of trusting the instruments with my life because if I saw something go really haywire, I was getting, you know, I was ready to bolt. Well, I guess you would feel it first. Huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm, I feel kind of warm here. That must mean that it's uh, hot. Uh, yeah, I, I played the video and then I, I read your email after. And it's like, see that little blue uh, area? That's me under that tarp. I'm like, I had to play it back. Like, what? <laughs> no, he's really close to the fire. <laughs> um, yeah, because that, that could have gone either way. Because um, that's part of, you know, figuring out what's going on, right? Mm -hmm. All right. Well, Thomas, uh, I, I appreciate your time and... Uh, for for being here on this interview and talking about your book uh uh any, anybody who wants to purchase the book they can go to nts press um i also have a, a shortcut link if you go to vishots.com slash books you'll be able to uh jump to that place thomas are you on any of the social networks twitter or any of such that so if people want to contact you about the book uh no email is probably the best way to contact me uh my email address is on the website also on the back of the book, but if anyone wants to contact me, they can reach me at tbress at exponent.com. Well, thank you, Tom. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me on the program. And thank you for listening to this episode. If you like the VI Shots podcast and want to support the show, the best way to do this is to go to vishots.com slash iTunes. That will take you to our listing on the iTunes store. Then go and leave us a review. The more reviews we get, the more visible the show becomes to a wider audience. Any reviews are appreciated. If you want to comment on anything you hear in today's episode, go to vishots.com slash 29 and post a comment on the show. Thanks again for listening and bye for now.